This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, let's jump into it. This is our second installment of the Plucked Chicken Podcast, dealing with the small catechism, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to obtain the Lutheran mind. And so you can't obtain the Lutheran mind apart from the small catechism. Now, can you, Pastor Oakry? Well, I imagine you could, but it'd be pretty difficult. It's such a useful tool to get us shaped into this thing. And of course, when we say the Lutheran mind, we really do mean the biblical mind. Amen. So, Amen. So you said last time that there are six chief parts. The first chief part is the law, the Ten Commandments. And you wanted to take us into Scripture and read regarding where we find the Ten Commandments. And we find it in two places. We find it in the book of Exodus, which is the more traditional place we go to. But it's also repeated and reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, So here it is from Exodus. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I have to ask you, Pastor Oakery, what translation are you reading from? I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Okay, because I... If I'm not mistaken, that translation must be some kind of crazy translation because in most recordings of the commandments, there's the first commandment is this, the second commandment is this, the third commandment is this. Is, did you just get that Bible like half off or something? Was it half price? No, I mean, that is the that is a acceptable translation of the Hebrew. Um, there is no place where it says... These are specifically the commandments that you need to Then follow. how do we come up with ten? Well, because it says that these are the ten words that God spoke. That's why we often call it the Decalogue, the ten words. However, as you go through here, and as you may have heard, um, you can count far more than ten specific commandments. And so the burden then comes to be like, well, which ten did he really want us to hang our hat on? Which is a big difference. Um you came from the evangelical world, and and the numbering of the commandments that you would encounter in the catechism is very different than the number that you would have grown up with. Yeah, and listen, I, this is a, a bigger deal than, well, than most people think, in the sense that if you're in the evangelical world, there is the really the Reformed-slash-Calvinist numbering of the Ten Commandments, and For those uh, evangelicals that grow up in a devout home, you're very familiar with these commandments. Then you start looking into Luther, and then you start hearing about the small catechism. And as we've done here today, you open up the catechism, and the very first thing that you're confronted with is the Ten Commandments. You get to commandment number two, and you realize the numbering is, in your opinion, 
it's totally wrong. This can shut everything down as a result of that right there. What do you do? Well, I think you need to come to the text and engage with it and say, why would you have a different number of commandments than, than I do? Or why would you number these commandments differently? And, you know, let us reason together. And, and that's a challenge because we so often just assume because we're taught these things and we're taught them at a very early age that, that that's how they have to be. Right. And you're never exposed to any different numbering. Say, for instance, who knew that an Orthodox Jew has a completely different numbering of the commandments? Who knew that? Well, if you didn't grow up a Hasidic Jew, if you didn't uh, grow up, uh, you know, reading the Torah and, and understanding the law through that lens, you'd never be exposed to it. But sure enough, they start their first commandment is what how does that begin i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery that's that, commandment number one that is yeah whereas for us it's the preamble it's the rationale for why the commandments are being given so let's look at this i mean the big difference that we're looking at there's a difference between lutherans and catholics but it's a very minor one and it deals with the difference between this text and deuteronomy i'm not going to read the deuteronomy text but one of the big switches it does is it switches the two covets at the end it puts uh coveting uh your neighbor's wife before coveting the house. And they, in typical Catholic number, they do reverse those two. It's Deuteronomy 5, if any of our listeners yeah. want to check that out. Um, so, but but the main place we're struggling with is is this kind of Reformed, growing into Baptist, going into Evangelical. It's It really is common in America. We're more, we're more aware of it in Lutheranism, because if you go to Hobby Lobby and you're looking around and you're going to see Ten Commandments stuff, it's going to be numbered in, in what we would call the Reformed way. Or, right. And Which so, came later after the Lutheran tradition. Right. Why do they number things the way they do? I'm, I'm less up on this. I think that the, the no graven images was part of an, a kind of classic kind of idea that was set in there. We don't want— Absolutely. We want to get these images out of the church, although— Luther didn't go far enough. Right. Uh, although, as we read the text, we can see clearly the prohibition against images is prohibition against idols, which, of course, is not a pressing— problem for us for the most part today. Obviously, there's still some idols out there, and people have little Buddhas and whatnot, but the idols of our heart tend not to be man-made objects that we keep and venerate in that way. So that's part of the reason why that was drawn out, and certainly it is easy to put the two covets together. In fact, sometimes just as Lutherans talk about them, we sometimes just say, well, the, the two covets go together. So why did Luther divide the two covets? Why did he bring the no graven images into the first commandment. And that's the first thing I think that's important. Coveting is something that takes place in the heart. I mean, this is something that takes place silently, as it were. I mean, when I'm stealing something, this is out in the open. I could probably be seen on a CCTV camera. But coveting, I can do, and you wouldn't even know that I'm doing, which, by the way, that is a nice sweater Thank you. you're wearing. I know. I, I always get compliments on this. So this coveting takes place in the heart, and when you've got two coveting commands, one for physical things and another for non-physical things, boy, that covers everything that they would want to desire. That's my attempt at trying to answer that. And then Paul turns around and says, I didn't even know, how did he say it? Something to the extent of, I wasn't even aware. Now I'm totally uh, messing up the verse here, but I wasn't even aware of the gravity or the extent of my sin were it not for the coveting commands. Right. And the coveting command, it, it is nice that he breaks it into two because the way we covet stuff versus the way we covet people or relationships is very distinct. And obviously Luther had enough to say on both that he could give us meanings to both that are very separate from each other. And so sometimes I think we do ourselves a disservice. It also is a nice sandwich because the coveting is a nice ending point that draws us back to the first commandment again. You're either going to have two commandments regarding idolatry. Yes. In the Reformed tradition, shall have no other gods before me, the second one being you shall not bow down or make any graven image. You're either going to have two commands regarding idolatry, or in the Lutheran tradition, you're going to have two commands regarding coveting. You're going to get two on the same issue, whichever way you go. And again, idolatry and a covetous heart, where does your heart belong, are in intertwined issues. So let's look at why Luther would have swallowed up the graven images into uh, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And I think the, the real critical piece for Luther, now he's coming from, he was an Augustinian monk. He had a great deal of respect for Augustine. Um, he brought a lot of his teachings forward and made them prominent in Lutheranism. Um, and this was a numbering that came from uh, Augustine. And part of the reason why this numbering exists is because of what happens in verse 5 of, of chapter 20 of Exodus, where God says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and, and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Those who are familiar with the catechism will recognize that as the conclusion. And I, th I think Luther is right on the nose. In fact, there's not a lot of disagreement in, in Christendom that that little section there is really a, a conclusion to the commandments put in the front to show why keeping these commandments matters to God. But I would say that in the evangelical world, that is that is never drawn out. And I mean, that's its own issue that we don't kind of explore this text, because if you don't explore the text itself, you're not going to understand the rationale behind any of this stuff. So Luther, quite rightly, because he un always understood the first commandment to be the headwaters of all the commandments. All the other commandments flow out of the first commandment, and, and rightfully so, he would say that if you keep the first commandment, you are automatically going to be keeping all other commandments. And if you keep all the other commandments, you're keeping the first. And so you could easily say when David, well, he coveted Bathsheba, mm -hmm. and then, of course, he has uh, an affair with Bathsheba yeah. and then kills her husband in all of that sin, all of that breaking of the commandments, you're saying the first one he was breaking was the first commandment with each and every sin. Absolutely. And, it, and it's inescapable because God had given David guidance in his life and David was not following that. He was following after something else. And so obviously he's not putting God first because if he was, he'd be keeping God's commandments. The thinking here, and I think it's it's actually very nice. And, and until this was pointed out to me, I kind of struggle with this. Well, it's, it all seems very arbitrary, right? For Luther, it wasn't arbitrary at all. He wanted the conclusion to be separate, and he knew that first commandment was so vital and so pivotal, and so he swallowed everything that came up before the conclusion into the first commandment so that they worked together to help enforce the truths of this. And so I think he has a very nice rationale for it. So what I'm hoping this is doing is equipping you to understand that the numbering isn't a set in, set in stone thing. I mean, that's kind of funny to say about the Ten Commandments, but... It's, it's not. Um, there, there's a little fluidity in there in as much as God didn't go through and number them himself. He just said, these are my 10 words, and I expect you to follow them. But those 10 words, no matter how we parse them, the, the meaning's always there. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't go to an evangelical and say, you guys don't take coveting as seriously as you should because you have one coveting commandment. We have two. And I would hope that an evangelical couldn't, wouldn't come to me and say, you don't take graven images as seriously as you should because you don't include that. You would like to think that they wouldn't, but they would. And I'll tell you why. There's something driving that. And this is this literal interpretation pair of glasses, so to speak, that the evangelical wears. I'm talking about your pious, devout, Bible-believing, pew-jumping, devil-thumping evangelical. As I said, he's going to look at this ordering system and he's automatically going to say something's wrong here because of this literal numbering system. See, what you're advocating is a natural sense of the text. Here's all the commands. Look, if you can read them yourself and find 10 and 10 only and especially know which one is which all the way down, then go for it. They can't. So they rely on that which they've taught or bought at Hobby Lobby. And so they wouldn't look at this list and say, you can figure out the commandments based upon just this simple reading and not think that because we don't have graven images in our list that somehow or another we're, we're unorthodox. Yeah, well, and I guess that's an opportunity then for us as Lutherans to teach. Again, we are painfully aware of just because of the culture we live in in America. I mean, I think this is way less prominent in Europe that there are these different numbering systems out there and they need to be addressed. And, and there's a really simple way to address them and simply by looking at the Bible. Um, I guess it goes just a long ways to show how we don't dive into the Bible to get to the source like we should. 
unless somebody is just being very stubborn, I think that when you explain to them and kind of walk them through the text and say, look, it's not numbered in here. And so the numbering system that we've all come up with is a artificial one. And I think sometimes, just like you said, if you can point out that we've already departed from the traditional Jewish numbering, which is quite different, that there's some room here. And I would say as long as you're incorporating everything that is included in the Ten Commandments in the biblical text, and as long as I'm including everything, no matter how we number them, we're in a pretty good place. You would think. Right. But that's not my problem, and that's not our problem. Uh, the catechism presents it to us in, a, in this way, and, and, it, and it swallows all of that up. Right. And I guess I should just say this. If you're coming here and you don't follow the 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 numbering that Luther used in his small catechism, and you're troubled by this, I want to assure you that Luther did not, and nor do I, nor does any Lutheran believe that images <laughs> in the church are to be worshipped or adored in any way. And so we really do follow that no graven images. So now I would like to talk a little bit about the overall structure of the commandments and, and what they're doing for us. Because whether you have the um, Reformed Baptist Evangelical numbering, or whether you have the Lutheran numbering, there is a general understanding that there are two tables to the law. The first three commandments in the Catechism are addressing our relationship with God, and the final seven are addressing our relationship with one another. Um, and so the first three are a vertical component, and the, and the final seven are a horizontal component. Which is not something that, again, we constructed or Luther constructed. I mean, this is how Jesus summed up the entirety of the law, in that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this is, this is the first table and the second table summed up. Yes, and, and we know that based on that, because we know those... Uh, summaries of the commandment. Well, you could almost challenge that and say, well, if I have those two summaries, why do I need any of this? Well, because our idea of love needs to be more informed than what it is. So what does it mean to love God? I mean, that's a, that's a legitimate question. And that's a question that the catechism is always asking. What does this mean? What does it mean to love God? Well, it means to have no other gods before him. It means to not take his name in vain. It means to remember the Sabbath day. And what does it mean to love my neighbor? And on we go. I think that's the wonderful thing about Scripture is it doesn't just leave us with the simple answer. Uh, God is willing and happy to further inform our thinking in all of this. So that's the first important structural point. But I think we also need to understand it, the context in which the Ten Commandments were given. Now, I think we all understand this story. We've all seen Charlton Heston up on the mountaintop and all of those things. But look at the very beginning here. And God spoke all these words, saying, I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's already establishing a reason for giving these commandments. That's wonderful. These commandments don't come before his love. These commandments flow out of his love. I've already shown my love to you by delivering you out of Egypt. And now I'm, I'm actually giving these commandments to bless you. I don't know about you, but I don't always approach the Ten Commandments that way. I, I approach them as obligation. I approach them as obedience. I don't always approach them as a blessing given to me by my gracious God, who has already done everything for me. He just says, I just want to live in this wonderful relationship with you. And here is the way that that relationship flourishes and grows. And, and when we break the commandments, it doesn't break the relationship, but it certainly weakens it instead of strengthens it. And he bears with us through that. And sometimes he punishes us in that, that we might repent and come back. But this is the place where our lives are ordered. And so even now, we're coming into the Ten Commandments not as heathens encountering an angry God. We're encountering him as the children of God who have already been shown that he is our God. And these commandments are doing something very powerful to shape that relationship. And I think that's very interesting to me because so often when we come to the, the Ten Commandments, we see them as the entry point to the faith. When here, that's not true. The entry point for the children of Israel into that relationship was God delivering them. And of course, the entry point for us into the faith is God's deliverance too. The, the Ten Commandments don't bring us into faith. It is what Jesus Christ did for us, whether that, whether that 
act of sacrifice and, and forgiveness and mercy is placed on us, poured on us in baptism, or whether as adults we, we encounter it through his word and, and then are baptized, that's the place where we start. But still, the Ten Commandments are so foundational for that relationship and us being drawn into it. And it is scary. That's part of the reason why I read the conclusion, which I also think is wonderful, because he says all these things. And, and the people looked and they saw the thunder and they saw the, the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And they said, we, we don't want anything to do with this anymore. Moses, you seem to like talking to this terrifying God. You go and talk to him. We'll, hey, you come back to us. We'll listen, which is not true, of course. And, you know, what's interesting about that is that you have so many evangelical, sappy songs where Jesus is your boyfriend, and they're all referring to the fact that they want God to speak to them. Well, here, clearly, God is speaking, and the people, as you say, want nothing to do with this. This is, as Moses, so to speak, is going up the mountain, the people are retreating they're walking backwards because they are afraid yeah and the interesting thing here and again to put this in its proper context because i think we often get the giving of the ten commandments wrong we often think that that the ten commandments were given to moses up on mount sinai and he was there chiseling away on the stone tablet and it was a personal deliverance to him god gave the ten commandments to everyone Otherwise, Moses is the one going up the mountain and getting all the, the other stuff, the details about how to build the tabernacle, the, the ceremonial and the ritual laws, some of the laws about governance, all that. He's dealing one-on-one on the Mount Sinai with God there. But here, God is booming from the mountain, and everyone hears it. And he says this— He's preaching. Yes. Sinai, say his pulpit. Yes. So this is so critical, and this is why we keep coming back to the Ten Commandments. I don't use— the instructions for building the tabernacle to govern my daily life as a child of God. I don't use the the ritual instruction given in Exodus or Leviticus or, or Deuteronomy or any of that. I don't use that to govern my life at this point. You don't? No. I eat pork and I, well, I don't have any tattoos, but I mean, there's all these, these all the, there's all these prohibitions in there that we don't follow anymore. And of course, This can get us tied up in all kinds of knots. And I think this is a really important thing for us to understand before we start diving into the Ten Commandments is what makes the Ten Commandments different than all the other stuff that is commanded in this this place. And the difference here is, one, this is the proclamation that was made to all people and really for all time. This is the moral law crystallized. And, And so the picture is this. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they kept the Ten Commandments, and they kept them perfectly. And in fact, they kept them spontaneously. And that's such an important word, and it's it's such an interesting word to encounter, but there was no interruption between their thought and their behavior. They thought it, they did it, and it was good. Uh, They were perfectly aligned with God's will, and there was nothing that could interrupt that process at all. And each other. And we are anything but spontaneous. If we act spontaneously, we are going to treat each other horribly and sin awfully, and we're going to break the Ten Commandments. And so what was naturally written in the heart of Adam and Eve without any obscurity and and simply was lived out in their lives perfectly, sin obscured. Not completely. There was still a a semblance of of right and wrong embedded in our heart, right? What C.S. Lewis would call that sense of oughtness. I ought to do this. I ought not to do that. Whether we do it or don't, we have that sense. But God comes along here and he says, that which was once written very clearly on your heart, I'm going to very clearly write on stone that you might see it and make it your own again, that this is going to clarify what your heart already knows and has written on it by me, because this is what I made you to be. This is critical for us to understand the law of God is perfect and good. In fact, it's a perfect expression of his will, and it's a perfect expression of who we're supposed to be as his creatures and as his children. You're saying then that with the Imago Dei, Adam and Eve had the law of God clearly printed upon their heart. When sin entered in, and this is what's so 
vile about what they do is that they don't have a sin nature like you and I. That law of God is indelibly printed upon their heart. They spontaneously fulfill the will of God, and so they actively desire another word of God and go after sin. So you'll hear people say, again in the evangelical world, they'll say, we're made in the image of God. But they don't realize that image has been shattered. It's not Adam and Eve, Amago Dei. The law of God is, is obscured. And thus, this is why we need Ten Commandments. Right. And this is part of the reason why we, we dislike the Ten Commandments, is because our heart speaks something different because of the, of the shattering of that image, or at least the obscuring of it. Uh, although shattering is more to the point. I mean, it's not like you can just clean it off. Right. But our heart says one thing, and then we see the Ten Commandments, and we say, oh, maybe I'm not as good a person as I'd like to be. I, I asked this. Uh, I was on an online forum once of just a bunch of different people, and uh, certainly uh, different faiths and lots of non-believers. And I said, do you think that you are basically a good person? Of and, course they say yes. Uh, of course, because their their view of themselves and their actions align. And anything that they do... They have a justification for it at some level, and and sure, and sure, most people will be like, well, yeah, I made some mistakes, of course, but in general, my actions line up with what my heart says is the right thing to do, and so I'm I'm good. But the problem with that, and you know this, Pastor Oakry, their definition of good is not the same as God's definition of good. Yeah. God's definition of good is those Ten Commandments. Yeah, and I love this, but it ta- I think it takes some time to grow to love this. God comes to us externally, and he says, no, you're not as good as you think you are. In fact, you're as far away from good as anything can be. You need something good to act upon you. And so this law comes to us, and it shatters this illusion we have of ourselves. Instead of realizing, hey, I'm a pretty good guy, I say, no, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. And it brings me to my knees. But God isn't content to just leave his law out there to, upon me. He, he brings his gospel. He lays the cross of Christ, which is the goodness that I'm robed in, not my own goodness, but the goodness of Christ. But, and that, and that's, the, that's the joy here of encountering this. And, but that's why the Ten Commandments endure for us as Christians, whereas uh, the ceremonial or the, or the civic law of Scripture does not. But isn't this what Jesus Christ was trying to get the rich young ruler to see? Well, of course. He essentially says after Jesus goes through a litany of some of the commands, not even all of them, probably all second table if I'm not mistaken, the guy's like, I've kept all those from my youth. What else you got? And he says, well, you're not keeping the first commandment. (laughs) You have a different God for your heart. And he goes away sad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And God lets him go. Jesus lets him go. I mean, that's... Well, if I'm not mistaken, it says that he loved him. One of the translations... Well, after, the... after he said he kept it perfectly, it says he looked at him and he loved him. Right. And that's when, and that's when he says, you lack one thing. And, and so he says this very painful thing to this man out of perfect love. I, I love that text because it, it puts Jesus in this wonderful place where, again, we're starting to understand a depth of love that's more than what our culture you usually allow for. I love you enough to send you away sorrowful. I love you enough to confront you with the idols of your heart. The importance of this pressing upon us is, is so critical because it shows us that we have a need that we cannot fulfill ourselves. And that's why we separate this out from not eating fish or wearing mixed fibers. That's, that's the stuff that was there to, to help distinguish the children of Israel from the rest of the world. And that distinction mattered a lot. Like, don't, I'm not diminishing the importance of that distinction. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, those distinctions stopped mattering because now God's children were going to go into that world. And instead of just keeping the, the, the truth preserved until this Messiah could be born, now that the Messiah is born, it's time to bring that truth out of this family uh, the family of Abraham, and spread it out into the world. Now, the early church had a lot of struggles with this. Peter didn't want to give up on the, the purity laws. He wanted to enforce uh, eating certain meats. Lots of Jews struggled with the idea of circumcision. I mean, it's all laid out bare in the New Testament. 
But the place they kept coming to in the spirit, right? This wasn't just an arbitrary thing. Is they said, those laws don't matter anymore because of Christ. Now, there's a temptation there then to come back to the Ten Commandments and say, well, those laws don't matter anymore either. But there is a meaningful difference between the moral law, which is expressed in the Ten Commandments, and those ceremonial and those civic laws. And the church, throughout all history, has always done a very good job of saying, yeah, we don't follow the ritual law. Yeah, we, during different times and different places, we have different civic laws. That's, that makes sense. The moral law never escapes it because the moral law is what's written on our heart. But you're right, too, because we talk about this image of God that we have. And you can, this, this, hap- this pops up in, in Lutheran circles, too, actually, in a slightly different form, I think. Lutherans maybe don't think that they're, because they're a believer, that they're somehow perfected in this life to the point that they could keep God's law perfectly. I know there's some evangelicals that do think that. Oh, man, I heard a sermon just yesterday. I really wish to some degree that you and I could just listen to it. Maybe we don't record ourselves listening to it, but it is just what you're saying. It is so crazy. The guy says, I want you to go out and be like Christ this Christmas. Yeah. Which, I mean... And he's not talking about virtue. He's talking about being perfect. Yeah. Yeah. But in Lutheran circles, it isn't so much I'm living out that perfect law written on my heart, but it is this assumption. It's an assumption about spontaneity that they simply just accept. And so... What I, what I see happening in Lutheran circles sometimes is that we say, well, I am saved and God is working good through me. And then they think about like maybe the sheep and the goats and, they, and, and, and when God says, you fed me and you clothed me and you visited me and all this stuff. And, and the sheep say, well, when did I do that? And he goes, whenever you did it for the least of these, my children. But they look at the surprise of them and they say, well, see, I'm not even going to know the good works I'm going to do. So I don't even have to try to do good works. God's just going to spontaneously do them through me. And the, le- the less I know about it, the better. Well, there's some truth in that. I mean, whenever we think about the good works we do, our sinful pride always comes in and it starts to spoil the goodness of it. I, that's true. But I think sometimes what they forget is that we are at the same time sinner and saint. And what was spontaneous for Adam and Eve can never be spontaneous for us in this life. Because sin is constantly making us stumble and making us graceless. On top of the fallen world that is constantly pulling us in that direction, as well as the devil himself. Yeah. And so sometimes the reverse temptation comes upon us and goes, well, I'm stumbling and I'm graceless in this life, and I guess that's okay because Christ died for me. And there's some truth in that too. But where Scripture's constantly taking us to is a place where we don't just accept our gracelessness, and certainly we don't just assume that he's... We're going to spontaneously do good works. We're constantly being exhorted and encouraged to engage in acts of love. We're supposed to be like a prima ballerina. A prima ballerina, when you see them on stage, do they look like everything they're doing is spontaneous? Are they completely graceful in everything that they do? Sure they are. Of course. What did they have to do to get to that point? Mm. They had to practice. And they had to stumble and they had to fail time and Sacrifice time again. Sacrifice and fail, all of that. Yeah, and there are deeply virtuous people, and 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 to be around them, it makes you feel good. And and this isn't these aren't people that say they're sinless; they're just nice people, and I enjoy being around them. And God's saying, I want you to be like those people, and it takes effort. I'm working through you, but it takes effort. Put off the old Adam and and become the new man, and. Of course, the Holy Spirit takes hold of us and makes that possible, but there is a place where we engage in that. And the Ten Commandments are helping to instruct us in that. That's why Luther gives us what we should and we shouldn't. And and he gives us guidance in how to do these things. Every day of our life here on earth is us practicing being perfect. And we never get it right. This is the morning prayer. Uh, I pray that I would uh, uh, be a perfect and holy person as I go into the world today, Lord. Keep sin out of the picture. Just help me to obey you as you would have me obey you. Or even in the private confession, right? Right at the end, after the penitent makes his confession, he says, he, she says, I want to do better. And and yet, it's not like confession absolution is a one-off event, right? And you come back to your pastor and he says, well, we already did confession absolution. You shouldn't have to be back here because we figured this all out, right? And the same thing with the, the evening prayer. 
you come back and you say, oh boy, well forgive me right. for all my sins where right. I've done wrong. Right. And and there's this recognition that every morning I wake up and I and I'm going to engage in this and I'm going to be practicing uh, the the moral life that God has put before us. But every day we also recognize our failure in that. And so every day we're driven back to the cross where, where Christ makes us perfect. And that's so much better than one, either pretending that I'm somehow finding perfection. Um, that's where Jesus is in the rearview mirror, right? He gives me the push, but I'm figuring it out. And it certainly is better than this idea that uh, God doesn't expect me to do anything he just, yeah, just just put on your sweats and go kick up in the recliner. You're fine. No, it's it's this constant engagement. It's 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 work and it's and there's struggle involved in that. But it's a it's a struggle that's so wonderful because God has given us a, a every day he gives us a safe place to fail. And the fact that we can step out with boldness and try to be better. And knowing that even if we fail that day, God says, yeah, well, I died on the cross. <laughs> You're forgiven. Let's, let's, let's do it again tomorrow. And, and to know that I'm not doing it for myself because I'm forgiven, but I'm doing it for the sake of just bringing light into the life of others. The blessings that are found in these Ten Commandments, you just, you just can't beat them. And, and it's so sad to me that we, we often don't treat these as a place to find blessing. Well, the evangelical, I can guarantee you right now, does not. Yeah. We have to approach them with some sense of obligation. Uh, because if we don't approach them with some sense of obligation, we might just never engage with them. Sure. But if you only approach them with a sense of obligation, oh, man, the burden that this weighs on you. Right? And, and we say there's two outcomes of this. You either have the pride of the Pharisee. I'm doing it based on the terms that I've made up, not God's terms. Or I'm failing and I'm despairing and I'm being crushed under the weight. But when we do it aright, when we, always, when we approach these Ten Commandments under the grace of Christ, then engaging with the Ten Commandments is, is a joy. Sure. If you think that wisdom is seeing things the way that God sees them, it's not dependent upon intellect. It's not dependent upon brightness or being a member of Mensa. It is seeing and believing exactly what God says to you in the sense of just seeing it the way that he sees it. So if these Ten Commandments are the way that he sees the good life, he says, look, I am telling you this is how to have the best life now, which I'm sure Joel Osteen didn't reference. I didn't read the book, but I'm sure he didn't reference the Ten Commandments. This is the best life Then you would think that as baptized believers, as redeemed sons and daughters of the church, as it were, we would say, well, that's how I want to live. Yeah. These are the things, this is the way that God has called me to live, not out of obligation, but as you're saying, as a way of blessing. And this is how we, we are salt and light. Well, then on the top world. of that, as you've already pointed out with the conclusion, which again, evangelicals do not even discuss, but this has ramifications to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. I mean, just on and on and on, whereas as doing what you're saying, which is, you know, throwing them off and not caring about them, that has ramifications to our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren as well. Yeah, and and so we can never take this for granted because we can we can never take our sinful flesh for granted. If we, the moment we take our sinful flesh for granted, that's when it's going to lead us into to horrible places, either pride or despair. And this is what the Ten Commandments do to us. They're constantly reminding us of our sinful flesh, and we don't like that. Um, I don't like being reminded that I'm a sinner. But it's not the only thing that they do, and I think that's what you're what you're getting at. No, I mean it isn't the only thing that it does, but. It also goes to show us that we can't ever deal with the Ten Commandments in isolation. The Ten Commandments always have to be viewed in light of Christ, in light of his promise and in light of his deliverance. And, and this is why like, I, it's sometimes maybe not fruitful. Like we, we, we want to be able to put the Ten Commandments in our courts. Well, I get that. It's the moral law. But we're not demanding that our courts proclaim Christ. And, and so what are, what, are we, what are we saying about the Ten Commandments when we divorce it from its proper place? 
um, as, as a place to draw us to Christ and then our life flowing out of Christ and then returning to him. I, I think we do ourselves a disservice. So you would say as Lutherans then, uh, not that we need to even discuss this, but that's almost a mixing of the two realms in, in between the church and the state when we try to set up the, the Ten Commandments as a use for the state? Well, I, again, I would just say that I think that uh, considering that he gave his Ten Commandments not to Pharaoh, but to his own people who had delivered, um, it shows that those Ten Commandments are primarily to be understood in the context of the believer's life. Now, there are places, absolutely, fundamentally, where we should be appalled and, and disgusted about the abuses of that moral law, even by non-believers. Um, but our, our duty isn't maybe necessarily to um, impose God's moral law upon the world, because, uh, and, and my point is this, imposing God's moral law in and of itself, there's, there's some benefits to that. But if we divorce the moral law from Christ, we really aren't accomplishing what the law was was proclaimed to us to do. Okay, so I'll give you uh, an example. You've seen this before. I'm sure our listeners have as well. Here's some guy who's convicted of a crime. He goes through all the different appeals. He loses those appeals. He's on death row. It takes however long for him for that process to go through and for him to actually be punished for his crimes. There's a group of people holding a candlelight vigil out front of the, uh, the, the executioner's office, so to speak, and, uh, and they're holding signs that say, uh, you shall not commit murder. This is a total mixing of these two realms. What is? Uh, Luther actually addresses this in uh, Shall Soldiers to Be Saved, uh, and he actually talks about the executioner specifically. Fulfilling his vocation. Fulfilling his vocation. And, and again, he's, he's saying... Look, yeah, we're not supposed to murder, but this person's been given a place of justice in the world. And, and in the fulfilling of that justice, he is doing a God-given thing. Now, I think the danger is also, as always, for the soldier uh, and for the executioner that he never, I guess, take pleasure in that. We should never be joyful sure. that we're taking a life. but Or spontaneous. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. No, there's no spontaneity in this. You're fulfilling a very special role. But um, in this world, in this fallen world, these things need to happen. Um, and that's why, like, Lutherans are not in the same place as, say, like the Mennonites who would say, uh, I can't even serve in the army because God forbids killing. We would say, yes, God does forbid killing. God does forbid murder. But we also have this authority over us and sometimes for the for the love of our neighbor we have to defend uh, defend them and this is this is actually a useful conversation because it does point and we'll, we'll get into this more as we get into the different commandments and how there can be conflict for us in them um, how the application of the law in this life this sin-filled life is not as easy as it seems um, we try to turn it into a, a, a you snap your fingers and you always do the right thing Whereas in this life, the commandments that God lays upon, this command to be perfect, oftentimes what we find ourselves is not choosing between this is absolutely right and this is absolutely wrong. We find ourselves choosing between this is wrong and this is also wrong. So which one is, is the lesser evil? And boy, right? And that's not, a, that's not a, a way of thinking that people like. People want their decisions to be right or wrong. And that's just not how it works in this life. Life is messy, and the Bible makes that very clear. Our life is messy, but God's law, God's word is perfect and clear and divine, and that's why it's constantly pointing us to Christ, because in this messy, sin-filled world, we can't even hope to be given a decision that lets us pick between right and wrong and just not pick the wrong answer. We are constantly sinning and failing and falling because we, we can't help it. This world puts those choices in front of us. And then pick the best one. And don't just leave it to your own heart to make that decision. Uh, come to God's word. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your fellow congregation members. We're the body of Christ, and we're supposed to come together for these things. It's, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to be, God's law, um, as a Christian, because we always know that we have forgiveness there. But it's constantly pushing us and it's constantly challenging us. And the situations that come up in this life will always make us wonder. And 
we always have the cross to flee to. And that's, and that's a beautiful thing. And, that, and we should never use the cross to justify sinful behavior. Um, but we can say, I have a decision to make here, Lord. And I feel like no matter what I do, I'm going to do wrong. Please help me to pick the right one. And please forgive me and the sin that will come from it. And he does. And there's a joy in that. Melanchthon struggled with this. He sometimes had a hard, hard time just picking anything. And so what did Luther say to him? He said to him, you need to sin boldly. That is so easily misconstrued um, to just be like, yeah, just sin. That's not what Luther was getting at. He was getting with Melanchthon, who was a bit nebbish, right? He just couldn't make up his mind. He said, you, you got to make a choice and you just got to, you just got to trust God's forgiveness to see you through this. And that's true. And that doesn't always sit well with me. I want my decisions to be as pure as the newly driven snow, but they're not. They can't be. And so again, the main takeaway I want from all this is that we're constantly be dri being driven back to the cross of Christ. This is what the law constantly does. It's driving us to Christ because it's showing how out of line our heart is, and it's showing us our need to be acted upon externally. So when Jesus sums up the law by saying to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, as you would say, first table of the law, the evangelical is doing his best to do that. But what you're saying is for anybody who takes this to heart, they can't do it, and Jesus did it for them. Yes. And again, that's not a reason not to continue to take up the struggle to, to practice it and right. put it into practice in life. But, but it's viewing now all of the commands through the lens of what Christ has done for you. He's the one who feared, loved, and trusted in God above all things, as the explanation of the first commandment would say. He's the one who, jumping to the end, he's the one that didn't covet not only non-living things, but he didn't covet living things. He's the one that didn't steal. He's the one that didn't murder. He's the one. He is the one. And yes. so we look at these commandments through the lens of Christ. Yes. And not just that he lived a perfect life, but that in his death and his resurrection, he puts that upon us. Um, and of course, how does he put that upon us? Through the means of grace. I mean, that's why all, you, can't ever, you can't ever divorce the, the, the six chief parts from themselves. They're constantly flowing and connecting together. And, and the only way you're ever going to make sense of this is by looking at it as a whole. Christian life is lived as a whole. And, of course, our, our temp the temptation for us is to constantly fragment it. Well, I, I've got the Ten Commandments. That's good. Oh, I'm feeling a little down today. I guess I need some Jesus in my life. That's good. Uh, oh, boy, I could, I could, uh, I'm in a tough spot. I need to pray. That's good. And, and yeah, but so channels on the television that we just flip back yes, and forth. But, but that's not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is us kind of flowing into and out of those things constantly. I call it the, the Christian spin cycle, right? We're going out into the world and, and we're saying, boy, I want to, I want to do good and loving things today. We realize that we don't. And, and in prayer, we come back to the cross. And, and of course we come back to the, we come back to the cross and word and sacrament as well. And, and, what, and what does that word in sacrament do? It sends us right back out into the world. And it's uncomfortable. It's, it's tension. Um, and so sometimes I use this analogy of uh, Christians are like a piano wire. We're strung between uh, engaging in this world and, and living in the grace and mercy of Christ. A piano wire is under tremendous tension. But what does that, intention, what does that tension enable? It enables a beautiful note to ring out. And a piano isn't just one string. It's a bunch of strings put together like the body of Christ. And what can what can a whole body of people under that same tension do? They can make beautiful music together. That's the joy of the 10 commandments because the temptation to cut ourselves off all that does is leave us as this we're, we're under not we're not under any tension anymore. But what good is a wire that's not under tension? It's useless. It's broken. It's no good. So the evangelical who, you know, love, you don't have any tattoos, as you say, but they probably have one, and it's, uh, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and 10, you know, tattooed somewhere on their person. So when it talks about how they've been created in Christ Jesus for these good works, you would say 
these good works are spelled out in the Ten Commandments. You don't have to go and and conjure up what that good work might be or try to, as we've talked about before, uh, try to uh, dream up some sort of crazy purpose in your life. They are spelled out in this loving of the neighbor, uh, commandments 4 through 10. Here they are. Do this. Yeah. And this is what creates that beautiful resonance when it's plucked. Right. The temptation for us is constantly to cast those good works out into to the furthest away neighbor that we have, right? Well, I I need to be a missionary in, you know, Equatorial Guinea. So whatever. not your mom? Right. Well, because my mom, I know how awful she can be, right? Not my mom, the abstract mom of our example here. Or how about in a congregation? I know how frustrating different people in this congregation can be, and, and they've hurt me. That kid in Africa. He hasn't hurt me. He hasn't hurt me. I, I, love, I love the snot out of that kid. And, and it's easier to love that kid than it is to love the people that God has put immediately in your life. He wouldn't have put them there immediately if he, went, if he wanted you to abandon them for those far-flung neighbors out there. So if you see your neighbor's dog running down the road, what does God's Word instruct us regarding that? Right. Well, you go and get his property and bring it back to him. Restore, restore that to him. And this is loving my neighbor? Absolutely. And this is concretely spelled out for me? Yes, and we'll see how that is spelled out as we get further and further into these commandments. But yeah, that's part wow. of "Thou shalt not steal." Wow. Yeah. So what else you got, Pastor Oakry? Um, I think I've covered everything I want to cover. Okay. Well, let's pick it up right here next time. I'm assuming that your plan is for us to actually get into the meat of each of the commandments. I think that would be uh, fruitful for all of us to dive into this text and you know explore what these words are and but then also the deeper meaning in 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 all of them so. yeah you t- said actually last time you were talking about so to speak the lexicon the the you the definitions of some of these words and making sure that all of our listeners are brought up to speed on what those mean so we will next time together in our quest to obtain the lutheran mind we will pick it up with the first three commandments You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.